Too loud? Never be too loud, Don. Alright, Don wants me to tone it down a bit. Thanks, Don. Good to be here sharing God's word with you again. It seems like a long time and it has been for me. It's been four weeks I haven't been behind this uh, pulpit here. And it's, uh, we've been blessed by a number of godly men who have shared God's word with us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, we'll read the verses 1 to 9 this morning. Let's read. <clears throat> to the chief musician, Hongiddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And we sit here before you today, we are here, and we gather in this way to glorify your name. And to thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you for the precious salvation which we share this morning. We thank you for your spirit which is among us today and in our hearts. And I pray that this morning that he would be our teacher and our guide. I pray that indeed that our hearts would be open to your truth as your word is revealed to us. We thank you once again for all things. We pray that this time would be a blessing to our heart that we might live more for you, that we might glorify your name in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have indeed been blessed the last four weeks to hear messages from different uh, men. And, and as it happened, we had two visiting uh, uh, men who shared God's word with us. And I appreciate uh, Brother Danny's message last week. And his focus, the focus of that particular message was a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah saw the Lord in heaven. And the particular verse, chapter 6, verse 1, you don't have to turn there at this stage. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah, I can imagine, would have been shaking at the knees at that stage because... 
everyone who sees the Lord in all his glory um, tend to have a similar sort of response. Uh, they end up falling flat on their faces or they, or they tremble, they shake. And, and I'm sure it was the same for, for Isaiah. And we know it is the same for Isaiah because he says in verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I think uh, the purpose of Brother Danny's message was for us to understand how high the Lord is, how lifted up and special he actually is. And the principle is this. How you see the Lord will determine how you respond to him. Do you understand that? Our culture has, and, and modern Christendom, has a habit of trying to bring the Lord down to our level. It's so much so that they almost treat him like another man rather than the glorious king that he actually is. And if you see the, the Lord high, glorious, powerful, almighty, you will honour him as such. If you see the Lord anything less than that, then what that is, is an idol. It's a God of our own making. And the world is rife with gods that have been created to suit men's needs. They can't understand an infinite God. They can't comprehend a God with such awesome power and authority. They would rather the Father Christmas type God. You know, roly-poly fellow with a beard who'll never really come and judge you, who's just loving but never really just. And this is what David brings up in this particular passage or in this particular psalm. He sees the glory of God in creation, the excellency of his name, his incredible power that's displayed through the things that he has made, his creation. David sees how wonderful creation is. And if we take time to reflect and meditate on how wonderful this world is, if we take time to, to understand when you look at, the, at a mountain and you see the sun and, and the moon and all the, 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 the things that God has created and the wonderful way in which they're ordered and we, have, we know the sun will continue to, to set and rise, we have opportunity to live because of the way God's created his universe. The more you think about that, the more you have to worship God because God has made something extraordinary. And when you consider how small the world is compared to the rest of the universe, we're only getting a minute glimpse of that glory. God is much bigger than we can imagine. God is much holier than we can imagine. He is much more just and pure and precious. And David ascribes praise to God, reflecting on how wonderful God must really be to create such an incredible thing, such as this universe. And then he contrasts that to man. So what he does, he paints this awesome picture of God, and then he contrasts that incredible realisation to man. And something uh, amazes him. And look at verse 5 in, in, uh, in Psalm 8. It says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. 
Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, I know this is a, a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that this is, in a sense, a prophecy of what would come. But David was also referring that to man, that God had put man in dominion over this planet. Man was to manage all things. And David finds it hard to understand and comprehend how could God bless man this much when he knew what man was really like, when he knew our frailties, our weaknesses, the sin which was in our heart. With all our faults, God has crowned us with glory and honour. Why? This thought amazes David, who finishes the psalm with simple praise. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Our focus today is on the question that David poses. It's almost a rhetorical question. He doesn't bother to answer the question. He simply puts it in there as a contrast. And he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that you even think that God in, in his glory even thinks about us? What is the son of man that you would even visit us? That you would even bother to spend time with us and want us in your company? The question that... that David, King David poses here is almost as important as the, the question posed as who is God? If we understand who God is and, we, and we, we reflect on how great God is, it will drive us to worship him. By the same token, understanding who man is will determine how we treat one another. This is one of the most important questions a person can ask. In fact, it is one of the most important questions facing each generation of man. It's just as important for the individual as it is for a society in general. You see, how men view men will determine what type of society they create. Because the way men interact with each other is determined by the way this question is answered. Indeed, the whole political, social, economic structure of any society is largely determined by the answer to this question. What type of society you want is going to be determined by what type of, of people you think are living in that society. Today we're seeing an uprising in the Middle East. We're seeing, we're seeing country after country up um, taking to arms. And Libya is an, a, a perfect example of it. It's almost in a state or is in a state of civil war because the people there want freedom, supposedly. I don't know all the details of it. But they've been under bondage. They've been under suppression for so long. They would rather die than not live in freedom. Indeed, conflict, the conflict which we witness in the world today and this, this struggle between totalitarianism totalitarianism, sorry, it's a, it's a big word, and it simply means people who have ultimate control over their, over their um, constituents, over their people. And democracy is really at the core of, the, of this question, what is man? What are, who are we? What are we? Is man a cog in the wheel of a state 
He's simply a cog that says put in and then he keeps on, has to revolve to make the state or the country that you, that you live in work. Or is he a, a creature, free, capable of making choices? Something higher than just an animal. Communism is an interesting example of this struggle that men have between what we do with each other, how we live with each other, and the struggle between a totalitarian state, a dictatorship, and a democracy. In communism, we have found the individual's rights are second to those of the state. So the, whoever's living in there, their, their rights don't matter as much as what the state's rights do. The state is God. You'll, you'll remember that when the Soviet Union was called still the Soviet Union, they shut down the churches. They weren't allowed to worship God. And the reason that is, is because communism says the state is God. And if you're worshipping something other than the state, then you're worshipping a false god. So the state is God and as such needs to be worshipped and served by the individual. And it's only in the collection of men working for the state do people find their real purpose and meaning in life. Wonderful, isn't it? Inspiring to you? It inspired Stalin, all right. It inspired him who managed to do away with 60 million of his own people who stood in the way of the glorious USSR. You see, people were a commodity. Nothing special about them. They were almost like cattle. Used for a purpose to elevate the state. How men treat each other is the result of how they view each other. Is man just a random act of nature with no definite beginning and is constantly a product of his environmental influences? Or if man is just a collection of various chemicals that have been thrown together by chance... And driven by a simple need to survive as any other animal around him, then how can man be expected to rise above that? If that's what you believe you actually are, if you believe you're actually just a random event, a collection of chemicals that's come together just by chance, and that you are simply nothing special but a smarter animal, then you cannot be expected to rise above that in your life. Who am I will always determine to the greatest extent how I behave. If I'm simply a smarter animal, I'll definitely live up to that belief. But if I'm a specially created being with a purpose and have been designed to live up to the standards and aspirations of a creator, then I'm more likely to live up to that ideal. What I believe about me will determine how me is to live out my life. How me interacts with other people. How me faces life and the challenges of this world. How long did we spend in Revelation? Anyone have a, an idea of how long it took us to go through the book of Revelation? Because it took us definitely more than a year. I don't plan on spending a year on this subject. But I will what I want to do is spend the next possibly few months to share a number of sermons about living for Christ in this world 
And what I want to do with these beginning sermons is set the foundation for godly living. If we understand who we are, if we understand who God is and the relationship that we have with God, then we are more likely to then make the right choices determining the principles of God. We're to take, we, are, we'll, we will take the principles in God's word more seriously when we understand this is why I was created. What does it mean to be a Christian? How is one meant to live this thing called Christianity? What we see ourselves as, what we see each other as, and what we see this whole world as, is, forms part of what's called a worldview. Who's heard of that term before? A worldview. Okay. What is a worldview? Well, I've created a handout for you. It came in your bulletins. If you have it with you, open it up for a moment and you'll get an idea of what a worldview is. You'll notice here I, I choose, or we've chosen three particular worldviews. One is called, if you look at the top line, naturalism, humanism, and Christianity. Christianity is what's called a worldview. It's how people view the world. And you'll notice on the left-hand side, you'll notice some, some uh, a breakdown of, of that worldview, of these, these views. The first one is the basic idea. The foundation for this worldview, what is real, what am I, what I am, what is God, how can I know, or what can I know, what are values and the goal of life. And you look as you run across, naturalism says that nature is the basic idea behind its worldview. In humanism, it's the individual. In Christianity, it starts with God. The foundation, well, the foundation for naturalism is natural elements and events. In humanism, it's human authority. In other words, well, what's right, what's wrong, what's good and what's bad begins and ends with, with a human being. With Christianity, the foundation is Christ, who is the fullness of God, who has revealed himself to us through his word. What is real? According to naturalism, nature, the cosmos, Evolution, the evolutionary state of the universe is what's real. In humanism, what I choose to be for myself is real. In Christianity, creation, dependent and valued. A creation valued by God because he created it in love and called it good. And we are dependent, or the whole universe is dependent upon God simply for its existence. What am I? According to naturalism, I am my DNA. A complex set of chemicals that simply works together. In humanism, what I am is my choice. Anything I want to be. In Christianity, what am I? What I am is a made individual, a created being. An image, limited, but in the likeness of God. What is God? In naturalism, there is only, there's only nature. In humanism, God is simply a force for good, reason, and it's the spirit in every man. In Christianity, God is the sovereign, imminent, omnipotent, trans, transcendent creator of the universe. What can I know, according to naturalism? Only about the material world. There's no transcendent plane. There's no spirituality in it at all. 
In humanism, there is no absolute truth. That's very common these days because every man is a law unto themselves. My truth is mine and your truth is yours. You can't tell me what's right because I'm my own God. So there's no absolute truth, only my perspective. In Christianity, truth exists in the form of general, which means the things that God has revealed about himself through nature and also special revelation, which refers specifically to his word. Okay? God, God, the truth about in Christianity comes from two sources, nature that we observe and also the Bible. What are values? Well, according to naturalism, a utilitarian, functional, what works best for society. In humanism, it's a choice. In Christianity, it's faith, hope, love in God and absolutely grounded in a system of virtues that God has said are virtues. The goal of life and naturalism is survival and trying to survive and die with minimal amount of pain. In humanism, it's the capability of doing it all my way. And in Christianity, it's, it's the character, becoming virtuous, being transformed to the image of Christ. It's having a relationship with him. And I've listed Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. If there is an example of philosophy and vain deceit and the traditions of men, naturalism and humanism are perfect examples of that. They are creations of man's mind. Not based on truth, simply based on convenience and the desire to do away with God. One of the core issues about when, we, when we're talking about who man is or what man is, is the question is, is man basically good or bad? This is a big question that, that, that arises. And I'll, I'll let you know now, but every other worldview, every worldview says that man is basically good. Not bad, but good. Every worldview. And that he can save himself. Whether they're religions or worldviews, they have as their mechanism for salvation. And I don't know what the term salvation is a really funny word to be using in respect to them because they, they all believe with one, in one way or another that man is able through enlightenment, through social reform, through revolution, through evolution, through human government, that man, man is able to ascend and continue to improve. So man is getting smarter, wiser, more, um, uh, apart from the word godly, more virtuous as he's going along. In other words, man has the potential within himself to fix the problems that he sees around him, including himself. Have you ever heard the question, why do people do bad things? Have you ever Ever heard that one before? Why do people do bad things? You've heard that, haven't you? But have you ever heard the question, why do people do good things? That's one not, not mentioned too often, is it? I've never heard someone say, why do people do good things? No, they don't. And you know why they don't ask that question? It's because they, they believe people are inherently good. 
So it's only the bad that really sticks out to them and, and, and that's the question they have to try to answer because they believe that man is good, not bad. So therefore, the only question they need to answer is why do they do bad things then if they're good? And they have a number of rather interesting uh, explanations for that. An example of this is when you ever go and preach the gospel to someone, half of the struggle is getting them to understand they're a sinner, is it not? Because if you don't get them to understand they're a sinner, they won't understand they have a need to get saved, and then they won't turn to Christ. So half the struggle is getting someone to understand how actually bad they are. Regardless of who you are, of who you ask, where you ask them, what society they're from, if you ask the average person, do you think you're going to get into heaven one day? The answer will inevitably be yes. That's because they themselves believe that they're good. Because they've been conditioned to believe that they are good people. And the basis of that, that goodness is a comparison between themselves and every other person. And the, 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 if you press them on the question, you say, well, why would you get into heaven? They'll say, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I haven't done anything really bad. I mean, I haven't gone and killed anyone. I haven't gone and done, you know, done all these, these, these crazy things that other people do. I've done some, yeah, I've told a few white lies here and there. I've, you know. It's amazing. Even if you go in the prisons and ask the same question, murderers will say the same thing to you. I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm murdered because, you know, I was being attacked or I went through a, uh, through a bad patch. So most people in the world believe they're good. And that, becomes, that comes as a result of their worldview, which is reinforced by naturalism, humanism. And this one here, which I haven't mentioned or formed part of this, pantheism. Who's heard of pantheism before? Pantheism is an interesting one because not only is man good in pantheism, man is God in pantheism. Man is God. And we just need to recognise that fact. The reason there are problems in the world, according to pantheism, is that we just haven't realised that we're actually God, that we can create reality. And if everyone just understood their godhood, then the world would be a much better place. Pantheism doesn't allow for a personal God. What pantheism has is a God that's everywhere, but not personal. A God that you don't have to answer to. God doesn't make, a God that doesn't make any rules or, or set boundaries. It's, he's simply, or it is, simply an impersonal force. All is one, all is God. And <clears throat> there is a westernised form of pantheism, which we call the New Age. The New Age adds evolution into that idea, you see, because evolution is very, very prominent now in most fields. It sees men and women becoming, or coming, with, uh, or arriving to a universal mind. In other words, all of humanity is heading towards the age of Aquarius. <laughs> yes, Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. What's the age of Aquarius? You've heard the song probably in the past or you've, 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 you've heard the phrase before. The age of Aquarius is when humanity finally gets it and they have one mind and they understand that they're God and they're, they're part of this awesome picture. Um, and 
the world moves into, um, for want of a better term, the millennium. Moves into a new age of enlightenment. Pantheism sees man's problem as a spiritual one. Somehow, man forgot their oneness with the universe. So this separates man from his understanding of true nature, and this is the reason we've got so much suffering in this world. So once again, man is basically good in pantheism. We just forgot about it. And if we just remembered it, that we were really good, then we'd be better. Let me break down naturalism for you, just, to, just to very briefly. Natu- in naturalism, man is the product of his environment. The product of his environment. As a product of evolution, man is um, just a more highly evolved animal. He's a product of his environment. Ever heard of the fellow called Pavlov? Okay, you've heard of Pavlov's. What, what pet did he keep? <laughs> he had a dog. Pavlov had a dog. And Pavlov learned that if you um, uh, stimulate the dog in a certain way, whether it's with food or whatever it is, the dog will react always in the same way. It's like, you know, when I show my, my dog outside a bone and I'm inside the house and he's outside the house, he's looking at it through the window, the dog will go... <laughs> well, Pavlov's view is that man, man is nothing really much more than a dog. And that man is conditioned in exactly the same way as a dog. Man will always respond in the same way. Consistent naturalist. That man is only a product of his environment. Ever heard of Maslow? Maslow was, a, was a same, along the same sort of lines. He believed that man was simply a product of the environment. And as such, he created a hierarchy of needs. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And, you know, and, and man finds his fulfilment in just satisfying those particular needs. When it comes to the, the nature of man, these guys are the most consistent naturalists. The psychologist named Skinner said that the mind was a myth, that thoughts were simply chemical processes responding to physical stimuli. Man simply responds to his environment. As such, man doesn't have a free will. Therefore, if you find yourself committing a crime, it's not your fault. Because it's the environment that made you do it. It's because of the way you were raised, because of your present circumstances, therefore you shouldn't be punished. Now, we, we hear a lot about that in that culture as well. There was a news, a news item, for example, um, I think it was recently, where some school children had defaced a school. They graffitied all over the, the school and they caught them. And when they interviewed the teacher of those particular students, the teacher said, well, they're basically good kids, but they, they come from underprivileged homes. Did you get what she was trying to say? Do you get the argument? That if you're, from an, if you're from an underprivileged or poorer status, that you'll be driven to do those things. The statement reveals what the teacher's view of human nature was. That man is basically good, but society makes them do bad things. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Society makes them do bad things, not themselves. Did you abuse your two-year-old, or was he just naturally selfish and disobedient? And then why do smart people commit crimes? Smart, rich people commit crimes. Naturalism put together with evolution 
has a belief that man is always improving, getting better. As they improve society and as you improve the, the, the conditions around you, as people get richer, they become better. They become smarter and they become, as a result, they do less bad things. That's basically how it works. But anyone studying history knows that nations normally start out good and grow for a while, and then what happens? They start going bad. You see, the leadership starts taking wanting more and more control. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see it in every society that, that, that's occurred in history. We see it in the book of Judges, in secular history, in Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome. The culture is the, This process or cycle is repeated over and over and over again, and we are somewhere in that cycle where societies down, keep on going down rather than going up. So what is man really like? Turn to Psalm chapter 8. Where do we go to find out who we are, what we are? Who can we turn to? Sorry, go to, go to Psalm 139 verse 1. Who can we turn to? Let's see who David turned to and who he believed. Answer this question. Psalm 139, verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou comfortest compasses my way and my lying down, and I am acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but Lord, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Who do you go to that knows you better than anyone else? Who knows us? Well, the simple answer to that is the one who made us knows us better than anyone else. I don't need to go to a philosopher or a, uh, or a humanist or a naturalist. The one who made me is the one who knows me and knows what's best for me. God knows us better than we will ever know ourselves and has chosen to reveal who we are in his own word. This is one of the things we, we, we have the Bible for. God has not only revealed his character, his purposes and his plan, he actually reveals who we are in this book. 
And it's an amazing thought. He's provided all the answers to us about who we are, what we're doing here, why the world is as it is, and we will do well to look at that if we are going to form an opinion about who we are. Let's see what the Bible says. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So, man, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. There's just our starting point. There's our reference for who we are. The foundation that God has created us in his image. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that God looks exactly like us? I'm sure God's got a better hairstyle than me. It doesn't mean that we look physically like God. What, it's, what it means, or what this passage means, is that because we know God is a spirit. The Bible tells us that over and over. These are words that explain to us that God created us with a personality. Each of us has our own personality, just as God is a personal being. God created us with intelligence. God created us with an ability to think, to make decisions, to reason through things. God created us with a conscience. We are aware of who we are. And that we are aware of that there are other people that are similar to us, but aren't us. We, are, we have an awareness of what is right and what is wrong, also in our lives. We are individual, moral creatures. God created us in his image. And because of the way he created us, because of that image that he created us in, we are capable of loving, doing good deeds, doing things which are considered virtuous in society. We have the ability to make choices to sacrifice ourselves for love. So creation explains very well why we are able to do good things. Because God made us good to start off with. He made us with a capacity to be able to do that. This, is also, this also explains why man is so unique compared to every other animal in the world. We are able to think logically, to reason, to invent, to be artistic. Animals aren't artistic. We're able to think abstractly, to take ourselves out of a situation and think about a situation or a, or a, or a conclusion. How do the other world's views account for this? How does evolution account for the fact that we are so different to every other animal in the world? Why aren't there... Other animals that are close to us, that are similar to us, but a little bit less than us. Because you would expect evolution to show a gradual growth in understanding, intelligence, but there is not. There is a huge gulf between us and every other animal in the world. But Christianity explains this thing perfectly. 
Why we are as we are is created, is, uh, is explained perfectly because we are created with the same abilities but to a much lesser extent than our Creator. Now turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Out of every tree of the garden thou mayst freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in, that, in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, stop there. Did God put them in a terrible environment or a good environment? He put them in a very, very good environment. They had everything they needed. In fact, God walked with them. He put them in a perfect environment. Do you remember naturalism? You're the product of your environment. And if you're living in a bad environment, you will only be conditioned by that environment. Well, God gave them a simple command to obey. God didn't create robots. God created men and women with free will because he wanted, he wanted his, creations, his creation to choose to have fellowship with him. From the first two chapters of Genesis, we discover that God created man for a special relationship. He didn't have that relationship with all the other animals. He had it with man. He didn't choose to speak to the animals, but he spoke with man. He didn't set rules for the animals, but he set rules for man. He expected man to live according to his ways. He had a loving relationship with man. And in fact, we find that man was created from the beginning as well. He gave man the ability to create himself. And you know how, who, who, who named all the animals? It was man who, created, who named all the animals. And that's an amazing thing in itself. When you think about, you know, God brought all these animals to, to Adam. And he said, all right, what are you going to call this one? Call that one with those big antlers and that big mouth? A moose. What about the one with the two humps on its back? I think camel. Now, I'm not saying it's, he spoke those words in English because English wasn't around. But for him to give names to every one of those animals, another thing that's often struck me about that, did he remember them all? He would have named literally, let's say, hundreds at least of animals. He must have been smart enough that the next time he saw a monkey, he would have said, oh, there it is, the monkey that I named. He would have had to remember that unless he'd written them all down. There's no evidence that he wrote them down. The, The fellow must have had a pretty good memory. It was man who named all the animals. It was man who had a special relationship with God. So we see that man was doing good, was created good, and was placed in the perfect environment. But then we find something goes wrong. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither <coughs> shall ye touch it, lest ye die. 
And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth, doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto, also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou should eat not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest uh, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Typical male. And the man and the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Typical woman. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy heel, and thou shalt bruise... Uh, sorry, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shall thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth for thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken... For dust thou art, and unto dust that shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And to Adam also, and to his wife, the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That's, we refer to this passage as the fall of man. This is a critical time in man's history. This is the time that changed his whole history and ruined it for every other descendant of his. Man disobeyed. And in verse 7 we see that they were guilty. They were hiding themselves. Which is what guilty people try to do. Man was guilty. And as a result of man in verse 17 and 18. We see the whole world is affected by what they did. We see the whole world now groaning. Because of, of man's decision. Man's decision was intimately linked with the whole course of nature. That's an amazing thought if you think about it. That the choice that man made 
caused the whole of creation to suffer as a result. And the result was immediate spiritual death and eventual physical death. Because of the fall, the image of God that was in man was corrupted. It was no longer a perfect image. It was an image that was marred. The Bible Bible teaches that Adam's sin was passed on to the whole human race. And because of Adam, we all have a tendency to sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We are as we are because of the initial choice that our first mother and father made. The fall fall now explains why man is so capable of evil. We know why we're capable of good. Now we know why we're capable of evil. We have a perfect explanation in God's word as to why men do what they do. Every man not only has a capacity to sin, but has an inclination towards it. We died spiritually. This is why scripture can confidently say, whether it was 2,000 years ago or today, that man's nature hasn't changed. We haven't progressed in 2,000 years. We simply find it easier and and, and we find quicker ways to kill each other. We find more ways to fall and and to get into do things which degrade our human nature, which make us even worse. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That refers to everyone 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, today. Man has not changed. Pantheism says that there is no guilt because you are God and just need to recognise it. Naturalism says there is no guilt because you are simply responding to external stimuli. Your environment made you the way you are. Those religions teach that there is guilt. Those religions that teach that there is guilt all have a system to try to fix themselves, to try to to make themselves approved of God by their own methods. Christianity is the only religion in the world that is unique in that it recognises the guilt of every man. Christianity knows that every man feels guilty. God knows that that every man and woman carries around a guilt within them, the question is what you do with that guilt. And Christianity says that we can't do, nothing, can't do anything about our own guilt. We can't make up for it. We can't uh, approve, get ourselves approved of God by doing extra good works. Because let me ask you a question. Do you do extra good works to make up for, for a, a, a crime that you've committed? No, you do time or you lose your life. But in Christianity, guilt is good. It's not bad. It's good that people understand and feel guilty. You know why? Because guilt drives them to find a solution for their guilt. They know, and they, they, they know within themselves that though they try to fix up that guilt which, was, which is in them. I know, I've come from a Catholic system. People will walk up mountains on their knees until their knees are red, raw or bloodied to make up for the guilt that they have within them. They're given penance to do. 
There's a lot of guilt within uh, Catholicism. But guilt is good in a sense in that it drives one outside of himself to seek solution and that solution is Jesus Christ. There is no other solution in this world that can remove the guilt of a man or a woman. God has provided a way to take our guilt because someone paid the penalty for that guilt. This is the story of Jesus Christ. That God loved the world so much and knowing that we couldn't save ourselves, knowing that we can't, we are not going to continue on this upward path, but that we're always going to be the way we are. That God sent his only son into the world to save the world by dying for the world and offering his own life as a sacrifice and a replacement for ourselves. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God knew we couldn't earn it, so God made it freely available. That's the wonderful story of Christianity. That's what makes it so different to every other religion. Every other religion is trying to work their way back into heaven, believing they are good inside, and so God will one day recognise that goodness that they have. Wrong. They're only good in their own eyes. They're only good because they can compare themselves to everyone else around them who is also bad. That's the big lie. Let me ask you this morning, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Are you a good person? Have you realised that you need a saviour today? Or do you believe believe you can actually save yourself? If you still think you can save yourself, then there are plenty of religions in the world, in fact all of them, will provide you one way or another to do that. But if you believe God's word, if you understand what God has done and you understand his character and our nature, you'll understand that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ because he is the only way God has provided for a man or woman to be saved. If you carry guilt around with you today, Are you heaped with guilt? You're carrying baggage around with you you don't know what to do with. Well, let me encourage you. There is one who's ready to carry those bags for you. There is one who paid the penalty already for for that baggage and for that burden. It's simply a matter of giving it to him. I know we love to keep our burdens. We want to work them out our own way. But there's no guarantee that in one year time or two years time or five years time or ten years time you're going to be any different than you are today. In fact, you may be dead in that time. And the odds are that you will always carry around the same burden with you. Listen to the one who asks you today to hand that across to him. He wants to take it. He says in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Have you put your faith in him? Can you imagine a, a better person to trust your eternal soul with? I can't. I trust the one who made me. I trust the one who loves me and who's proven that love for dying for me on the cross. 
If you don't know him today, please come and talk with us after. Don't wait another day. Don't carry around your sin and your burden any more than you need to. The time is right. We aren't a random act of nature. We are here created for a purpose. Yes, man is fallen, but the next stage is wonderful. There is something else that God has done. We'll look at next week we'll look at the fall of man and what happened exactly when he ate that fruit. We will explore the tripartite nature of man. Man is spirit, soul and body. What does that mean? What do they do? And we'll look at what happens to a person or when the natural man puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see what God does for that person inside and eternally. Let's not wait another week to be there, shall we? Today you can be either a natural fallen individual or you can be an elevated saved individual. Make the choice today. You have free will. God bless you. Hold on.